In Daniel chapter 5, we're going to see in this ongoing study that uh, King Belshazzar's stubborn refusal to learn from the experiences of his grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, will bring him face to face with the certainty of God's judgment. And that's really been the theme as we've gone through chapter 5, not only the sovereignty of God, but the certainty of God's judgment. And uh, thus far in our examination of this passage, we've uh, looked into three of the six areas that are brought forward for our consideration. And if you've got chapter 5 open in front of you, let's start with verse 1. And we read these words again. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, which we discovered meant literally that he was inebriated, he was hammered uh, by what he was doing, he gave orders at that point under the influence of alcoholic beverages, he gave orders at that point to bring the gold and the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. The first thing that we learned was the corruption of Belshazzar, as we see in this particular passage. Belshazzar's out of control, not only just under the influence of alcoholic beverages, but the problem is he's under the influence of delusion that comes with being a man of tremendous arrogance and pride. And this pride led him not only to show a contempt for his enemies, which had surrounded the city by this point and were ready to take control of the Babylonian Empire, but feeling his invulnerability or his invincibility behind the walls that were 300 feet high, behind the fact that he had 20 years' worth of uh, 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 supplies stored up within those walls. The river Euphrates ran, or a tributary of it, or a channel of it ran right through the middle of the city. And he was absolutely convinced that he was invincible and he would wait out his enemies. At this particular point, we see his corruption, and not only that, but his contempt for these enemies of his, and also now for the contempt that he has for God himself as he brings in these holy vessels and they were going to desecrate him by drinking out of him and making a mockery of everything that his grandfather stood for as he had heard throughout the years. So as we see this, we see the corruption of Belshazzar, which is changed instantly as we read in verse 5 where it says immediately or suddenly at this point, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then his face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. He jumped up as he saw this sight from the banquet table where he was partying. And he began, he was shook up by what he saw. And uh, as we look at this and see this, we realize that God is not mocked by any man's contempt for him. When we reject the grace that God has to offer us, God is not mocked. And he says, don't be deceived, folks. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. Payday one day for our actions. And the principles that we see here are pretty fascinating. We talked about the fact that, you know, judgment comes suddenly only for those who are not prepared for judgment. The judgment of God comes suddenly. Just as the return of Jesus Christ here to this earth will come suddenly to those who are not looking for his return. That don't understand, nor do they want to understand what God has to say in the word of God about the return of Jesus Christ to judge both the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is coming again and his, and his return will only be sudden to those who are not aware that he is coming back. So the sudden judgment that we see, this hand appears and begins to write a message on the wall, and it's got the king shook up. Even though he's hammered at this point, he is going to instantly, almost instantly, become sober at what he sees. And so we look at this, and it's fascinating when we see it, because the Bible clearly teaches this, and it's something that we need to understand, and I, I know I've been emphasizing this 
But personally, I don't think that it could be emphasized too much. And that is this. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you do not have a relationship with the God who made you and you have rejected the grace that he's bestowed upon you and the invitation that he's given to all, that whosoever will may come, that whosoever will believe in Jesus Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. If you have rejected that gift that God is offering you, the Bible says that one day it will be a terrifying thing for you to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't think that could be emphasized enough in our culture because there's, in our culture today there's no such thing as judgment. In our culture, there's no such thing as right or wrong. We see it all the time with the surveys that are taken recently. Do you believe that a person's guilty? Yes, I do. Do you believe that there should be any consequences? No, not really. Duh. You know, and it's a difficult thing, isn't it? It's a difficult thing to balance God's judgment and justice with mercy. You know, and I met with Matt again yesterday in prison. It was an interesting conversation. It had to do with the fact that, you know what? It's a difficult thing to balance justice and mercy. You know, for those who love him and care for him, you know, we all want to see God be merciful. But at the same time, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't hesitate to say, but you know what? But you're judged for your actions. What you did was wrong. And there's no other way around it. There are other ways that you could have responded in the situation that you were in. And because of that, today you sit in judgment and you will wait to be judged. We need to pray for the judge. We need to pray for the DA. We need to pray for your attorney. We need to pray in this situation that God's will would be done and that justice would be served. And we don't know what that means. But there's a point in time where we've got to make people aware that they are personally responsible and accountable for their decisions. He could not blame his dad for what he chose to do, nor can any of us in our backgrounds blame anybody else in our background for why we've chosen to do what we did. Well, I turned to drugs because of my family background. I turned to drinking because of my family background. I'm an angry person because that's the way my dad was. You know, we all have excuses of why we want to do what we want to do. But the bottom line is this, and don't ever mistake it. You know, it all started with Adam and Eve. Adam blamed God for making Eve, and that's why Adam got in trouble. And when God didn't buy into that, he said, well, then, you know what? It must be your fault, God, because you made her. And God said, hey, you know what? I'm not buying into that defense. I am holding you personally responsible and accountable for what you did. And God judged him for his actions. We need to recognize and understand that. We live in a culture today that wants to blame everybody else except assuming responsibility for our own decisions. And God's not mocked by that. There is a certainty of judgment. And we see this change in his attitude, which is kind of fascinating. As he said, he called aloud in verse 7 to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. He went right back to the way it used to be. He's looking for human wisdom, and there is none available. So as the king spoke and said to the wise men, any man who can read this inscription, explain its interpretation, will be clothed with purple, have a necklace of gold around his neck, have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. And at that point, King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. At this particular point, we see the counsel of the queen about Daniel. She comes into the scene. She's not at the party, as we discussed last week. She's nowhere around the scene that's taken place. She realizes that this isn't a place for a godly woman to be. And therefore, when when the noise stops, the music stops, the parties parties and, and, and uh, you know in complete silence after everything else has gone on there's a flag that something's wrong and word comes to her of what's happening word comes to her of what her grandson has offered for anybody that can read the inscription that's on the wall 
And so she gets dressed and she goes into the, into the banquet hall, into this room where this party's taking place. And I'm sure as a grandmother or a mother that sees a child in the midst of just absolutely disgusting behavior, that she probably was tempted to give him a piece of her mind. But in great dignity and under the control of the Holy Spirit, she approaches him and she basically says to him, O king, live forever. Don't let your, face, don't let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. It says, and this was because of this extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Can you imagine in the midst of all of this confusion, everything that's going on, this godly woman steps into the scene, she steps onto the scene, and she basically says this, don't worry, I know someone who can help us in the midst of this problem. Isn't that a wonderful thought? What she's saying is, don't worry, call Daniel because he won't let you down. His track record is impeccable. He will not disappoint. You know, and I couldn't get that thought out of my mind. He won't let you down. He won't disappoint you. Because I was thinking, isn't that the reputation that we as God's people should have in the eyes of those around us? I mean, isn't that what we, that, that's what we should be about? Isn't that what God's people should be all about, that a world that's living in confusion, confusion and chaos, that doesn't have any sense of right or wrong or direction in their life? Shouldn't our reputation be that those people, when they're having times of crisis in their personal life, that the pers- first person they'll think of is us? That they'll pick up the phone and call us? That they know there's something different about us? That they know that we're men and women who stand for the truth? Because the truth is what sets people free. That we're going to tell them what they need to hear and not what they may want to hear. But we're going to tell them in love in a way that they will maybe accept it better than in judgment and condemnation and and anger and and resentment. We should be the kind of people people come to and and yet we we don't hesitate to declare truth, the whole truth of the whole counsel of God, but we do it in hopefully a loving way that we can explain the consequences of the decisions that they're making and why they are in the position that they're in. Now, I'm not saying people are going to want to hear that because the world we live in wants to hear what they want to hear, and so they look for people to tell them what they want to hear instead of telling them what they need to hear. And that's okay because God knows that. He warns us even in the last days that there'll be men in in the pulpits of, of, of churches around the world who will be called by people to basically tell them what they want to hear instead of tell them what they need to hear, which is the full counsel of the truth of God's Word. I mean, but that's the kind of people that we should be. When others look at our lives, they should, you know, they should see consistency and not hypocrisy. When she thought of Daniel, all she could think of was this man was a man of God. This man was impeccable as far as his credentials were concerned. This man, every time we turned to him, there was always a resolution to the problem. This man, even when it was tough for him to tell us the truth, encouraged that is unseen in the world today or then, He stood before a king and said, basically, if you don't repent and turn to God, he's going to turn you into a lawnmower. Kings don't like to hear stuff like that. What do kings want to hear? Oh, king, live forever. You're the greatest. You're the baddest. You're the best king we ever had. That's what kings want to hear. That's what we want to hear. That's what all of us want to hear. 
Hey, you know what? That's okay. I understand. If I were in your situation, I would have done the same thing. It's okay. You know what? That's not helping anybody. That's all right, Matt. I've been in your situation. I would have killed my dad too. If I could have just found a gun, it's okay. It's not okay. There's nothing right about making wrong decisions. We need to be people that declare the full counsel and truth of the Word of God. It's so easy to compromise. It's so easy to water stuff down. It's so easy to want to be liked more than wanting to help the other person by declaring the truth to them. Hey, it's okay. I understand. If I was married to her, I'd leave too. Duh. That's the kind of counsel that we get in our world today. It's all right. I understand. It's tough. I'd lie, cheat, and steal, make sure I got money in the bank too. Eh? Duh. That's what we hear though, isn't it? No one wants to tell anyone else that what they're doing is wrong. But you know what? Daniel didn't hesitate. What you're doing is wrong, and you're going to be a lawnmower if you don't stop doing what you're doing and turn to God for forgiveness. What you're doing is wrong. You're creating an image, Daniel's friends told him. And this image is not something that we should worship because we are here to worship God and Him alone. And this image that you created, we are not going to worship even if it means you're going to make toast of us in your furnace. But we are here to worship God. The vision that you have is not a comfortable one for me to share with you. But basically God is saying this, that your kingdom is coming to an end. But He declared the whole truth of God. The queen knew Daniel could be counted on to deliver the full counsel of God. That he wouldn't hold back, that he wouldn't try to manage the news, that he wouldn't make the king feel good about what he was doing, that he would just plain tell the truth. You know, and I was thinking about it. I want to get personal for a minute. Here, here's what I would like. I would like to have the same, that same kind of reputation. And I want to make a commitment to anyone that's listening today, and that is this. I want you to feel confident that every time that you come... And every person that you bring, and every family member and friend that you've been praying for, that they would hear the truth of God's Word. I want you to have the confidence that no matter what topic we're in, no matter what book that we're studying, no matter what's going on that particular morning, that when you invite them and you bring them, they will hear the truth of God's Word. That's the reputation that we all have to have. You know, there's nothing more disappointing and discouraging than to be praying for a family member or praying for a relative or be praying for a friend and finally, after years of praying for them and being there with them, you bring them to church and they don't hear anything that has to do with truth. There's nothing more discouraging in my life than that. This is serious. Lives are at stake. Eternities rest in the fact that we need to present the full counsel of God to people for the purpose of God's Word going out because God's Word never comes back empty and it's only God's Word in the life of another person that can cause a dead person spiritually to be raised to new life. The queen had that kind of confidence in Daniel. I like that. That's the kind of reputation I want. And I hope that's the kind of reputation that you want. That you will stand for the truth of God's Word. Now what's interesting is notice you know, that in spite of the queen's glowing recommendation, notice how the king responds in verse 13 and the comments of the king to Daniel. 
says, Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Is that the Daniel that you are? Now, what's interesting about this is, is that obviously the king has no respect for Daniel, and his arrogance is shown in these comments that we see here before you. Now, what's fascinating about all of this is, you know what? Belshazzar knew all about Daniel. There's no way that he didn't know all about Daniel. Belshazzar's name, have you noticed, is very strikingly similar to Belshazzar. Belshazzar, the grandson, knew all about Daniel. He knew all about Daniel and he knew all about his three friends and he knew about their promotion within the empire. He knew that they were Jews that were taken in captivity. They were outsiders. And everybody knew that those men were in positions of authority and they had no right to be there because they were taking jobs that family members should have had. He knew all about him. He just had a disdain and a contempt for him like he had a contempt for his enemies, like he has a contempt for God. The man is in contempt of everybody. He had held everyone in contempt. And that's why I said, aren't you one of those Jews that we took in captivity? (laughs) Don't ever forget that's who you are. Even though you've been here a long time, you can never forget your roots. That's how he's trying to slam them. Don't ever forget where you came from. And so he's looking at that. And even though he has this impeccable record, look what he says. I've heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But guess what? They couldn't declare the interpretation of the message. But look what he says. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretation, solve difficult problems. Now here's another slam. Now if, you notice, Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you'll be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck. And you'll have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. You know what he's saying? Even though this guy has impeccable track record, he's always come through in the clutch, he's always got the base hit with guys in scoring position, the bottom line was, you know what? This guy didn't like him. And he still questions him. Well, now, if you can really do this, then I'll throw the rewards your direction. And so one last shot before Daniel is about to speak. And I love what we find here in the contents of Daniel's answer to the king because as we see this, here's here's a man of tremendous integrity and dignity. He didn't get upset. He didn't get angry. He didn't start slamming this young whippersnapper. Like I said, Daniel was probably 81 years of age at this point, had impeccable track record, and he got this young guy in front of him who's basically showing him nothing but disrespect. And so basically he starts off and says... Um, Daniel answered and said in verse 17, you can keep your gifts for yourself or you can give your rewards to someone else. However, I'll read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Hey, this one's on the house. This is free. I love this. We went into great detail about that, but I got a follow-up for you because God's word is free. You don't have to pay. And in fact, don't ever get confused. If you are not a Christian, and you've never believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, which would make you a Christian if you have, but if you have never believed in Jesus Christ as the only way that you'll ever be forgiven and made right with God, then one thing that we can't confuse people on is this. If you're here visiting a church or ever visiting a church and the basket's passed around, don't get confused by putting money in it because you're not winning any points or earning any favors with God. It's kind of like if you invite, a fam- you know, you invite a, a somebody over to your house for dinner and they're a stranger, and you want to offer them something, you don't tell them to bring some stuff with them. You just don't do that. 
But you want to invite somebody to dinner and you want them to be your guest and you have them come and you provide everything for them. And so what people get confused in our culture today is this. The basket's passed around, they dig into their pocket, they throw a couple bucks in there and they think, okay, you know what? Now I'm more pleasing to God. And that can't be the furthest thing from the truth. It is the furthest thing from the truth. You can't pay to get into a right relationship with God. God doesn't need your money. He owns everything anyway. So duh, think it through. I mean, how much, how much money can you give someone who owns it all? And make any dent in, in your relationship with him. But the point of the matter is this. God's gift to man is offered free. For it's by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift that God is offering to mankind free. The hard part is in humility reaching out and receiving that gift of forgiveness and believing in Jesus Christ. But what, what Daniel wants to get across very clearly is this. Belshazzar. You cannot buy God's favor. So I am not in this, and I'm not motivated by what you're going to give me. I'm here to declare to you the truth of the Word of God. I don't want your money. I don't want your gifts, and I don't want your promotion. I want to just tell you the truth of the Word of God. Isn't that great? But you know what's interesting? Our society is messed up. I just cut this article out of the paper, and it says, Souls get a tune-up from spiritual coaches. Have you seen this? Oh, this is, this is unbelievable. Listen to this. For a fee or a donation, more people are getting help to grow closer to God. Every month, Gordon visits Barry, his spiritual director. Sitting in his living room home in Bethlehem, PA, Bethlehem, they discuss the state of his spiritual life. Sometimes they talk about his fear of rejection. Other times they talk about his fear of death. They almost always talk about prayer. And then he pays him $35 for their time together. Americans have long hired people to care for their children, their bodies, and their finances. Now they're just hiring personal trainers for their souls. Once only serving mainly Hollywood celebrities, spiritual directors are finding buyers among the masses. I have money and funds directed by money management, he says. There isn't much difference except one is helping me with my money and the other is helping me with my spiritual needs. Another article on the sports section this morning. That's how I prepare for... <laughs> but the NFL is investigating a ministry who's work, that is working or solely working with professional athletes because of the inordinate sums of money that these athletes are giving to this ministry. I know who, this, who these people are, and they have convinced guys in the NFL that if they don't support their ministry, that they will not pray for them, and that God will not bless them. And one of the greatest fears that any athlete has is his career being cut short by an injury. And they've basically gone on record to say, if you don't support us, we will stop praying for you, and God's protection will be removed from you. So if you get hurt, it's your own fault. And, you, you know, we shake our head and go, gee, that's terrible. And it is terrible. And the reason that people are susceptible or pray to that is because they don't know the Word of God. Isn't that true? If you knew God's Word, you'd realize that freely, freely we've received, freely we should give. That God's gift of salvation is free to anyone who will receive it. That God's favor is not bought by giving money to smooth-talking ministers that want to line their own pockets. One of the guys on the Rams who we become really good friends was tied up in this ministry early on in our relationship. 
And he called me one day for some counsel, and he said, man, I just got this disturbing phone call. And I said, what's the matter? He said, well, one of the guys that we've been supporting in the professional sports ministry just called and asked where our check was this month. And, I, and, and we never made a commitment to send him any money per month. And he wanted to know where our check was. And I said, and he said, I told him that we never told you we were going to send you so much per month. We gave you a one-time gift, but we never said that we were going to send you anything. And we got in this great conversation through the Word of God to be able to show him clearly that, you know what, don't let people manipulate you in your relationship with God. God's relationship with us is free. Free. To anyone and everyone who will open their heart and receive that gift. The Word of God is free. You don't pay to hear the Word of God. God only requires His people to give as a response to what He's done in their life so that we can send people into the world to hear that God's gift is free. That's the only reason that we raise any money for anything is to promote and to teach the Word of God so that God's people can be equipped to go into the world and offer that free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't ever mistake that. God doesn't want your money. God doesn't even want you to be happy. He wants you to be obedient. And He wants you to humble yourself and come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's fascinating as we look at all this because as we see, basically, that's what's taking place here. Daniel says, hey, you know what? Okay, now that we got that out of the way, this is free. This is on the house. God wants you to hear this. And I don't want anything in re, in, in, as, a, as a result. I don't want to be rewarded for doing what God wants me to do, which is tell you the truth. So now he starts with the lesson. O King the Most High, O King the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. So he's going to give him a little history lesson. He's going to say, hey, let's just go back in time and I'm going to bring you up to date. God granted your grandfather this kingdom. He didn't do it on his own, by his own might, by his own strength, by his own power. He didn't do anything on his own. God gave it to him. God handed it to him. We all need to be reminded of that, don't we? God gives us everything we have. You've got ability, God's given it to you. You've got great brains, God's given it to you. You develop it, great. That's what God requires of us. You've got talent of some sort, God gave it to you. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? And what are you bragging about it for? Because it wasn't yours anyway, God gave it to you. It, it's, it, he entrusted this ability to you. He entrusted this gift to you. Now he says, go out and use it for the glory of God. But whatever we have, God's given it to us. And so he reminds him right off the bat, hey, your, your grandfather, everything he had, God gave it to him. Don't ever forget it. He goes on and he says, And because of this grand, the grandeur which he bestowed on him, and all the peoples, nations, men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated. Whomever he wished, he humbled. God gave him everything he had and gave him absolute power and authority over the kingdom that he had given to him. Now what's interesting about it is that God used that kingdom to discipline his people who were in rebellion against God. It was all part of the sovereign will of God. It was all part of God is in control of everything. He says, so don't ever forget and don't feel so cocky and so you know, self-righteous that you know, don't you realize my grandfather was King Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, you know what? Your grandfather was nobody until God made him somebody. And you're nobody. You're, you're the descendant of nobody whom God made somebody. That's what he's saying. 
says, because look what he did. He says, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly and when he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like the beast, that of beasts in his dwelling place like with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched until the dew of heaven, with the dew of heaven. Notice what he says? Hey, he had it all until he, in his pride, started to believe that he deserved it all. That he earned it all. That he made it all happen. And at that point, God said, you know what? Hey, pride always comes before the fall. And at that point, he was confronted by the truth of the Word of God and was told, you better repent or God's going to step in and judge you. And he didn't believe him. So the man ended up being a lawnmower. And that's what it says. But look at the purpose of it. And here's what I love about this. Here's why God turned him into a lawnmower. He turned him into a lawnmower until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Do you follow that? God steps into our lives and he brings about discipline for the purpose of causing us to draw close to God. The motivation, the great motivation of God is love. And here's where we mess it up. God wants to step into the lives of people around us and He's going to discipline them. He's going to break them. He's going to humble them so that they have nowhere to turn but to God and reach out and accept the gift that He has to offer in forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And all us well-to-do, well-meaning people, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, we all step in and we try to buffer the discipline of God by enabling these people to continue to do what's wrong before God, mistakenly believing that we love them by what we're doing. No. God loves us. God loves your son. He loves your daughter. He loves your, your mother. He loves your father. He loves whomever it is in your life that God is trying to discipline. He loves them and He's trying to break them for the purpose of humbling them to the point they have nowhere to turn but to God Himself and Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. Hey, and you don't think it works, it works. Nebuchadnezzar, after seven years of mowing the lawn, came to his senses and turned to God and said, you know what, I now believe that you, God, can do anything that you are the ultimate authority, that you have ultimate power, you have ultimate control, and I am nothing, and you are everything. Forgive me for being such a boneheaded dummy. And he entered into a relationship with the God of the universe because he humbled himself and he believed in him for the forgiveness of his sins. Isn't that great? You realize that God is doing a work in the lives of people all around us? who are in rebellion against God and God's going to use whatever circumstances He can. You know how wonderful it is to tell a kid sitting in prison that, you know what, even if you're in prison for the next 20 years, the greatest news is you came to know Jesus Christ through this event. This is a wonderful thing that God has used for your benefit that you came to Christ. It's a terrible tragedy. It's a terrible thing that you're going to have to deal with. There's consequences for it and there's scars in our lives for all the things that we've done. But God oftentimes breaks us and humbles us for the purpose of turning us to Him and to Him alone. It's good news. That's great news. That's the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at the content of the answer to the king, look what he's saying. Now in verse 22, he gets personal. He's saying, now that was all about your grandpa. Now let's talk about you. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your hearts, even though you knew all of this. 
But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You've brought the vessels of his house before you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines. You've been drinking wine from them and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, stone, which don't see, they don't hear, they don't understand, but the God in whose hand your life, breath, and your ways you have not glorified. You notice what he's saying? You didn't learn anything from this. Folks, don't miss this. God not only wants us to learn from the examples that He's given us in Scripture, read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All of these things are given as an example for you and me to learn about God and the truth about God. It is to change our behavior and our attitudes. He's saying, hey, even though you've got the Word of God, it still hasn't changed your life. Even though you've got all these examples, you're still living in disobedience to God. Even though your friend or family member says, you know what, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and my life has changed radically because of that, you reject the evidence all around you of the truth of God's grace and His mercy. He's saying to Belshazzar, man, you have no excuse before God. You knew the history. You knew what God did in your grandfather's life. You knew how He came to know the God of creation, the God of Israel. He put His faith and trust in Him. You saw the radical conversion that took place. Your family's been talking about it for years since then. He put away the vessels in safekeeping because He was trying to protect that which was holy before God. You knew everything that was going on in His life and yet you chose to reject that evidence. God help us if you reject the truth of the Word of God. God help you as an individual if you reject as a Christian the truth of the Word of God and choose to do that which is disobedient to God, you will experience face-to-face the certainty of God's judgment. God help you if you're not a Christian and you reject the evidence that's all around you that God loves you, God loves people, and you see a friend or family member or relative who's come to know Christ and their life has radically been changed and you're trying to rationalize and justify it some other way other than giving God all the glory and praise for what He's done in that person's life. You are without excuse. You are rejecting the truth. And God says at some point when we reject the truth, He just turns us over to deluding influences. The offer is extended, but you cannot continue to reject the offer of forgiveness in Christ before God steps in and says, that's long enough. You've had long enough. You haven't responded, and now the the offer expires. That's it. And you will be judged accordingly. You realize that God rejects those who reject the truth? We know the Word of God, and some of us choose to reject the truth. We choose to live in disobedience. And we are deceived into believing that there are no consequences for that choice. God help us to realize that payday one day, that we will pay a price for our disobedience. If you are here today and you're living a life right now that's displeasing to God and you know it, then God says you better judge yourself before He steps in and judges you. That you better confess your sin, agree with God that what you're doing is wrong because God says it is. You better repent from it, meaning you better stop doing it and turn away from it. And you better turn to God for forgiveness and thank Him that He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all of that. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, God says that you are rejecting the truth of God's Word. And He will hold you accountable for that decision of rejection. Some are sitting here thinking, hey, you know what, but i got time, I'm going to think it over. God says the moment that you heard it is the moment you're accountable to make a decision. If you wait, then you've rejected Him. 
If God gives you another week to think about it, or a year to think about it, or 10 years, or 20 years, or 40 years to think about it, it's only because God is merciful and He gives you a break. If He chooses to allow you to be hit by a bus as you leave here today and you've rejected the truth and you stand in judgment before Him one day and He sends you to hell, guess what? God is just in what He does. Whoa. Wow, we don't want to hear stuff like this. We would rather be deceived and deluded into believing whatever we want and then one day have to experience the truth of God's Word. I would just rather tell you the way it is because it's true and the truth will set you free. See, that's what basically happened here with the content of Daniel's answer to the king. I love what we see here. It's awesome. It's, it's incredible when you think about it. He, you know, he forgot about God. He followed false gods. He forgot who was in control. Notice what Daniel says to him. He says, hey, you know what? Don't forget, Belshazzar, you think you're a pretty bad dude, but don't forget, the only reason you woke up today and you have breath in your life and you have life is because God has given it to you. And I like this little play on words. Notice what he says. He says, you know what? Your life breath, your ways are in God's hand. The same hand that he's writing on the wall with right now to teach you a little lesson. The content of Daniel's answer to the king is basically this. The hand was sent from him and this inscription was written out. Are you ready for the inscription? It says, this was the inscription that was written out. Many, many, tekel upharsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Many, God has numbered your kingdom, has put it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficit. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and will be given over to the Medes and the Persians. <laughs> Can you imagine Daniel here? He's like sitting there going, here we go again. I'm about to tell this guy what he's not going to want to hear. But I want you to notice this in conclusion how important this is. He says what? First of all, God has numbered your kingdom and has put it to an end. God has numbered your kingdom. You know what's fascinating as you read through the Bible is God numbers things that we do. He says every hair in our head is numbered. Every word that we say is numbered. Every act that we do is numbered. One day we give an account for everything we said and everything that we did. Isn't that fascinating? And he says he's numbered this. God is a great accountant. He numbers everything. He's got a tremendous accounting system. He holds us accountable for everything that we do. Isn't that fascinating? He's numbered it. But here's what's interesting as well. He says this. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. I want to just develop this thought for a second. Because in Belshazzar's heart, he thought that he was okay. But what God was saying was this. You've been weighed on the scale and you don't measure up. Now, when I was a kid growing up and we'd go to visit my grandmother's house, we had this little market on the corner. It was a little market where she bought stuff. And they had one of those old-fashioned scales. I don't know if some of you remember it. I know some of you do. Some of you, one of you may have invented it. Um, but, um, <laughs> but they had these old-fashioned scales. And what they would do is you say, okay, you know, I want a pound of, you know, salami, whatever. And they'd cut it up and they'd put it on the scale. And then they would have a little weight that they would stick next to it. And the weight would balance out whether it measured up or not. So the standard was the one pound weight. They'd put it on the scale and there was one pound. They would put the meat on there and it wasn't weighing up. So they'd keep throwing a couple more slices on and then they'd do it. And they always put more on and they go, is that okay? Yeah, well, because they're going to charge you for it. And what are you going to say? Uh, no, I don't want those two. So anyway, so then it would balance out. So what he's saying is this, in essence. He's saying, Belshazzar, God has placed you on the scale and he has used his standard to weigh you. And God's standard, folks, is perfection. It's not do the best you can. I don't know if you understand that. His standard is perfection. And he says that you don't measure up on his scale of perfection. God lays out a standard. The standard is found in the Word of God. The standard is found in the commandments of God. The standard basically says that you have to be perfect to measure up to God's standard. So what he's saying is you don't measure up. Now, we got a problem, and that's this. Belshazzar didn't measure up. Guess what? Neither do you, neither do I. 
Because all have sinned and fall short of the measurement, see it, of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. And so what God is saying to you and I is this, and catch this very clearly, is that none of us measure up. That we all have a deficit. And it doesn't measure up and it doesn't equal out. So what man tries to do is this. He says, well, you know what? I'm a little deficit, but I think what I'll do is I'll start going to church. Maybe that'll raise the scale. Oh, I'll start giving money. Maybe that'll raise the scale. I'll give up some vices, drinking, smoking, chewing, running around with girls or dogs that do. Um, and so that'll raise the scale. And you know what? Nothing raises the scale. Why? Because God says this, that all of your righteousness to me is as filthy rags. Every attempt that you make to become righteous is just garbage in my sight. And then you're sitting there going, man, well, I don't measure up. You don't measure up. None of us measure up. We're all in big trouble because we don't measure up. And God says this, for the wages of sin or the fact we don't measure up is death. He says, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way that you and I will ever measure up in the sight of God is that you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And God says that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed upon us or given to us. And that Jesus gets in the scale with us and it balances out. Isn't that awesome? You're sitting in a scale and you're trying to fill it with stuff that just isn't going to measure up. No way, no how. But God is saying this. When you invite Jesus Christ in your life and you believe in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, then God gives you His Christ's righteousness. He gets in the scale with us and we balance out. And you know what God says at that point? That now we're pleasing in His sight. Don't ever misunderstand the message of God's gift to us. Only through Christ can we be made right in the sight of God. Belshazzar was found deficit, deficient in God's sight. He didn't measure up. And because of that, God stepped in and He judged him for what He did. Notice in closing, the consequences that God brought. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. History tells us how they got into the city. Some of us go, but man, the city was impenetrable. There's no way they could get in. 300 foot walls, there were four, four wide, that you could have four chariots across it, they had 20 years worth of supply, a river ran through the middle of it. But here's what was going on behind the scenes as all this was taking place in the party room. The Medes and the Persians, who had conquered all of the empire, were now coming to outside the city of Babylon. They had encamped around the city. They took the little tributary or the channel of the Euphrates River that ran through the middle of it and they dammed it up above it. So all of a sudden, as they were all in their party and getting hammered and being basically in, you know, showing contempt for God and his enemies, uh, they were all outside damming up the river so that the water stopped flowing underneath the city. As all this was taking place outside of their sight, because there was no guards there, there was no way anybody was going to get in, they all just, as the water ended up receding in level, the water then made it easy for them to go under the walls of the city that were there, and the whole army just marched in under the cities of the wall. Now here's Daniel, who just lays it out with Belshazzar and says, hey, you know what? Uh, your, your kingdom's come to an end. God's found you deficient. He found you wanting. Uh, he's going to step in and judge you. And basically, man, for you, the party's over. And what's interesting about that is, look, and then what he does, Belshazzar gives orders and clothes Daniel with purple, puts a necklace of gold around his neck, issues a proclamation concerning him that now he's going to be authority as third ruler in all the kingdom. Great. Isn't that, the, I mean, isn't that amazing? It's like having a boss that's going to promote you on Monday and they tell you all about it Friday and then over the weekend they die of a heart attack and didn't tell anybody else. 
you show up for Monday going, hey man, I'm promoted. And everyone's going, did you hear what happened? Harry had a heart attack and died. But did he tell you he's promoting me? Oh no, he didn't tell anybody anything. It was sudden. <laughs> oh, this is a bummer. Well, here's, here's Daniel like going, hey man, you know what? The other reason there's no sense giving me any of this stuff is because it's not going to be yours to give after tonight anyway. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. Can you imagine? As soon as the story was over, the banquet hall doors burst open, in comes the Medes and the Persians, and they go up and they look for him, specifically the king, and they kill him right on the spot. How's that for the certainty of God's judgment? Time up. Offer expired. But what's fascinating is this. It says Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And God's turning the corner here because what's fascinating is this that Daniel will continue to have influence in the life of Darius. And we know from Scripture that Darius is a man who believes in the God of Israel and is a man who has a heart that's sensitive to God. And it was under Darius that the Jews were allowed to return to their homeland and the captivity and the discipline of God ended at that particular point in history. What a wonderful truth. Turn with me to John chapter 3 in closing. John chapter 3, I want you to notice something as we conclude this Wonderful study on the certainty of God's judgment. In John chapter 3, words that are familiar to many of us, we look at this, and yet I want, I want you to see it in context for the message that it contains for each of us. In John 3, look at verse 14. It says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. For those of you who don't know, know the story, you know, Moses lifted up the serpent and, was, and the people were told if you would just look up and you would believe that that, would, that serpent would heal you, then God would, would heal you through that process. It was nothing short of a miracle, but it was a picture of what he was going to do in, with Jesus Christ. And he says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him, speaking of Christ, have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, there's judgment, but have eternal life, there's mercy. For God didn't send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. Because he who believes in Him is not judged, he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And in verse 36 we read, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath or judgment of God abides on him. Folks, it doesn't get any simpler than that. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you escape the certainty of God's judgment. If you do not, God's judgment rests upon you. And God is just in what he chooses to do because you have rejected the truth. God help us to understand the seriousness of this to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. Because there is no other way that you and I will ever measure up to the standard of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Thank God that He gets in the scale with us so that we can avoid the certainty of the judgment that's to come. God, we just thank You and we love You and we praise You for the mercy that You've shown us in Jesus Christ. God, I just pray for those who have continued to hold off and reject the truth of, of Your Word that they will realize they are without excuse one day as you do whatever is just. As you judge them for that rejection, God, they will be without excuse before you. You said that Jesus has been given a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to those who are on the earth, that are under the earth, and those who are in heaven, that He is Lord to the glory of God. 
God, we thank you for the forgiveness. We thank you for the righteousness that's found in Christ. We thank you for the fact that it's only through him that we measure up according to your standard. And we just praise you and give him all the glory and praise because he's done all the work as he died for us on the cross. And we just praise you and love you in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.